Good morning, I'm Jay Jackson. I'm an elder and also serve on staff here. Uh, this marks our third week in our Jesus Saturation sermon series. Um, <clears throat> it's been a while since we've actually cast the vision for disciple making. Um, for those of you that are new to New Community, uh, our church was actually started about 10 plus years ago. Uh, we were a campus of Apex Community Church, and discipleship has always been the heartbeat of our ministry. And uh, doing that life on life, life in community, life on mission in our house church families. And uh, the elders really wanted to have an opportunity to cast the vision for disciple making and lay out some biblical principles and practices for disciple making and kind of get us all on the same page, kind of marching in the same direction and get us all on mission, moving in the same direction, using the same language. Uh, so uh, we decided to go through this Jesus Saturation sermon series. God's big vision for the world is Jesus Saturation. He says in Ephesians 1, to 23, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Jesus' saturation. Jesus' saturation is God. God's mission is that his people will be so saturated in Jesus that every person in every place would experience the words spoken and the deeds done, the, the words of Jesus and the deeds of Jesus, and be transformed by it. And I love the, the, the vision that the prophet Habakkuk casts uh, where he says, for the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the seas cover the earth. Jesus' saturation. Unfortunately, here in America, um, our churches have tended to put Jesus in a box. We tend to see church as the building when we come and we participate in worship, and then maybe during the week we'll gather together in a house church, or maybe we'll go through some classes, and that becomes the extent of our faith. This morning we want to challenge one another to get outside of the box, to have a greater vision for discipleship other than a one or two hour event in the week, and think about what if we release Jesus from our box of convenience? What if we allow him to saturate every aspect of our life? What if we saw discipleship as an all-of-life endeavor? This is what Jesus called his disciples to and what he's calling us to as well. All-of-life discipleship, life on mission, life in community, life on life. And we're going to look at this vision in the book of Ephesians, if you want to turn your Bibles there. Uh, we're going to kind of take a high-level survey of the first three chapters of Ephesians. Uh, the first three chapters talk about our position in Christ, our identity in him, who we are, and what is coming because of our identity in Christ. And then the last half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, tell us how we should live in Christ, how we should live out that identity, our position, and then our practice. And from this, we're going to build a theology of Jesus' saturation and all of life discipleship. So the vision for Jesus' saturation is Jesus' head overall. And Paul takes us on this journey up to the throne of heaven where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then he'll contrast that with what our life was like before Christ. And so if you think about this representing the throne of heaven, 
down here will represent the place of the dead. Before we were in Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then this stage will represent uh, this life, kind of the in-between, not yet stage of this life, our journey till we are made complete in him. So we're going to look at that just for a few minutes to get the vision that Jesus has for Jesus' saturation. And he talks uh, about um, what we have in him. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. This is us. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he describes this position in Christ. And as, we, as I read this list, focus on the words. Focus on who you are, that this is you as the church. This is what God has given you. In him, we are holy and blameless. In him, we are adopted sons. In him, we have redemption and forgiveness. In him, he has made known his plan to us. In him, we have an inheritance. In him, we have the Holy Spirit. And then Paul intersperses throughout this journey of before and after Christ with a prayer. And he does this a couple times. And it seems like his emphasis is, I want you to get this. I desperately want you to believe this and receive it and know who you are in Christ. He says in verse 15, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. I love that word immeasurable. We can't even measure it. The greatness of his power toward us who believe. And he tells us why he wants us to get this in verse 22, he says, And he put all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all to the church, us, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus' saturation. That's his vision for us. But before Christ, and then he takes us down to the place of the dead before Christ. Apart from him, we were dead. We were following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were children of wrath. Praise God, that's no longer you. That's who we once were. And then he takes us back to the throne in chapter 2, verse 4. And he says, but God, that's who we were. But God, being rich in mercy, he gave us what we didn't deserve. We deserved his wrath. He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's that word again, immeasurable. We can't even measure the riches of his grace in kindness towards us. That's us, folks. That's his church. That's his desire, his vision for us. But, again, what we were before Christ in verse 12, apart from Christ, you are separated from Christ. 
You're alienated from the commonwealth. You're no, no longer part of this privileged people. You're strangers to the covenants of promise, all those promises given to Abraham and the people, people of Israel, having no hope and without God in the world. And then he goes back up to our position in Christ, and he says, we have peace. We're united with him. We're reconciled to God. We have access to the Father. We're fellow citizens with the saints. We're members of the household of God. We're a holy temple, a dwelling place for God. And then again, he just he throws in that prayer. I want you guys to get this. I want you to live it. You need to know it. God will grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. He wants you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And he wants you to be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice the entire Trinity is involved in this. The Spirit gives us strength with power. We, we can know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and we can be filled with the fullness of God. Now he's saying he's going to make a transition, a transition here. In light of all this, in light of our identity in Christ, our position in him, this immeasurable wealth, this inheritance that we have, how are you going to live? How are you going to live? You have heavenly spoils. What are you going to do with them? Denny's going to come and read for us what God asks of us, what he's calling his church to do how are we how we are to live out this Jesus saturation denny if everybody wants to stand as he reads the scriptures for us in Ephesians. i'm going to share from ephesians 4 uh, verses 1 to 16 i therefore a prisoner for the lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge and of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the treasures of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul begins the chapter with urging the Ephesians to walk worthy of their calling. This idea of, of walking is a metaphor just that refers to our life. Live our life that's worthy of the weightiness of this, 
of the value of this. That's a pretty high calling. Are we going to walk worthy of that calling? And he's going to begin to, first of all, paint a picture of what that worthy calling should look like, what the church should look like in very practical terms. He says the worthy walk is always humble and gentle. Humility, that idea of putting others before ourselves, not being full of ourselves. Gentleness, strength under control, self-control when it comes to our reactions and responses to others, being patient with one another, being willing to live through all the negative stuff of life, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. It's more than just tolerating people, but really forgiving people as in the same way that Christ forgave us, totally releasing and setting us free. And then staying committed to each other because of and for Christ, keeping that bond of unity. That's who we are. That's, that's what we should be experiencing as the church. Are you seeing that? Are you experiencing that? Is that descriptive of your life? A humble, gentle, patient person that puts up with others' faults, keeping unity. Then he's going to kind of zoom out and get a, just a little bit different perspective of the church. And he's going to essentially zoom out, almost like we're out in space looking down on the earth and instead of billions of people, we're going to just see one planet, one humanity. And there's really only one lens that matters, only one lens that unites everything, and that is God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he's looking down, this sovereign Lord, none higher, and he's saying there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all is one. That's all that really there is that brings us together as God's people. That should be our focus. And God is that glue that holds everything together. Sin separates, but God reconciles and unites. So now we're going to get into the practice of the church. We, get a, we have a vision for what it looks like. We've gotten a practical picture, uh, a perspective from high, what God is wanting for the church, and now he wants us to tell us how this is going to be accomplished uh, through the vehicle of the church. And the amazing thing about this, God gives us everything that's necessary to do it, and he calls it grace. It starts with a gift exchange. There in verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The church has been given, you and I, we've been given grace to accomplish this worthy walk, to accomplish Jesus' saturation. What is this grace? It's the goodness of God. But it's the goodness of God to, to us who didn't deserve any goodness. We deserve the wrath of God, but instead God gave us his favor. He gave us his blessing. He gave us his kindness. I think of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 where that same word is uh, found. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. It's a present given to us as a sign of favor. Where does this gift come from? He says here it's according to the measure of of Christ's gift. This could be rendered in two different ways. Um, one way is that everyone has been given a gift, a different gift with a different amount of responsibility. When the Spirit indwells us, we are given a, a spiritual gift a, and a responsibility to use that. Or it's a gift that's in proportion to the abundance of grace. Out of God's great measure of grace, out of the immensity of it. But either way, it's a, it's a knock your socks off, blow your mind kind of grace. 
that he has given us. And he's given it to us to equip the body, to build up the body, to accomplish Jesus' saturation. How was this grace acquired? Uh, in verses 8 through 10, he tells us how this grace was acquired. And he quotes from Psalm 68, verse 18. And then he follows it up with this parenthetical uh, comment. So in Psalm 68, it's a, a song about uh, a song about God, the King of Israel, who goes down to Egypt and delivers his people and takes them to the promised land, to Mount Zion, and distributes the land, divides the land among the people. He's giving these gifts. And it's this idea <coughs> that the same God who won the ultimate victory, who ascended from heaven, who descended from heaven, and came to earth and dwelt among us and went to the cross and delivered the captives. He set us free. He took upon himself our sin and, became, and he became our righteousness. And then he ascended to heaven and he now sits at the right hand of the Father, that position of authority, and he distributes gifts. It's interesting in Psalm 68, it talks about the people giving the king gifts, but he, uh, here he says the king distributes gifts. Isn't our God amazing? He, he does it all. He gives us grace and he sends to heaven and now he's distributing gifts to us. He sent his spirit. And whenever... Uh, whenever the ascension is spoken of, it emphasizes Christ's authority and the fact that Christ encompasses all things <clears throat> and places them in their proper role. So when he ascended on high, he didn't leave us comfortless. He didn't leave us without his power and authority. He sent a gift, this gift of his spirit. And I think about uh, the disciples, when Jesus ascended to heaven, there was this angel standing there, and he's like, why are you gazing up, looking up into heaven? This same Jesus is going to come back in the same way. He's coming back. And Jesus told the disciples, hey, I have to go, because if I don't go, the comforter won't come. It was necessary for him to ascend so that he could release his spirit upon his church. That's the gift of grace that he gives us. His power and authority to accomplish his purposes, to accomplish his ministry, to build up the body of Christ, to build it into the image of Christ, to accomplish Jesus' saturation. So what's in this gift of grace? He's not... In the, if you look at the context here, it's not just referring to the gift of salvation. It's the grace that God gives each of us to fulfill ministry, to do ministry. And inside this gift that Christ gives us of himself, he says there's a variety of, gift, of gifts. And he describes them as equipper, equippers, people who fulfill a role Apostles. Uh, the apostles were the, were the sent ones, the ones who were sent to establish the church and lay the foundation for the word and the work of God. And then there was the evangelists, those who were gifted in, in declaring the gospel and proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done. And then there's the prophet, the one who... Um, speaks forth the word of God. And then there's the pastor teachers. And some say that because of the grammar that these two ideas are so intertwined that, that it makes up the one role. So shepherd teacher, the one who cares for the flock and instructs the flock. These are the gifts that God has given us. And if you look at all um, four or five of those what do they all have in common? 
they're all speaking about the word of the Lord. They're all delivering the words of Jesus. So what do these equippers do? The word gift equips the saints for the work of the ministry that makes the body grow. These equippers, they're the mechanism and the, that accomplishes ministry effectiveness and that accomplishes the mission and, and ministry maturity. They lead and feed by the word of the king. So what, what does this word equipping actually mean? Um, it's kind of used in two sense, in two ways. Uh, one is to mend something. Like if, a, if there's a hole in a fishnet, you're, you're fixing something that's broken. And then it's also used in the sense of providing something that's lacking. When you think about that in terms of the Christian faith, what is broken? Uh, how do we need fixed? We need fixed from our sin condition. We need repentance. We need mending uh, from the sin condition. But we also need something that's lacking. We need faith. We need truth. Uh, I think of Romans chapter 1, where uh, Paul talks about the ungodly, that they exchanged the truth for a lie. And then they didn't honor God as God and they worshiped the, the, the uh, creation instead of the creator. So this whole idea of we need these equippers give the truth um, so that they, they identify where there's brokenness, where there's unbelief in the heart. And then they share the truth, what's needed, the answer, faith, so these, what are these word, words and works all about? Um, he also says that he gives the saints, the saints to do the work of the ministry. So all of this, all of this together, these words and works, they build up the body of Christ. And he, he kind of ties, pulls all this together, this idea of equippers, equipping the saints to do the work, and he ties it all up in one powerful phrase in verses 15 and 16. He says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This phrase Speaking the truth in love, that's what makes the body grow up in every way. So the words and works are brought together in this powerful phrase, speaking the truth in love. The church grows up, matures, becomes like Christ, experiences Jesus' saturation when everyone in the church is speaking the truth in love through the use of their spiritual gifts. The church accomplishes growth when we're speaking truth in love. So exact, what exactly is this? Let's kind of try to break it down a little bit. Truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. All truth is defined by him. He is the word of truth. He is the ultimate source of reality. And down later in this chapter, in verse 20, 21, he talks about, um, but that, that is not how, the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Jesus is the truth, and it's found in him. And then this idea of love, speaking the truth in love. God is love, and he demonstrates his love through Christ. This is love that Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So putting these two ideas together, when we speak the truth in love, we are communicating in our words, in our actions, in our attitude, God's truth as seen in Jesus. We're living out God's truth. 
for the church to walk worthy of its calling and experience Jesus' saturation, each of us much must contribute our part by declaring Jesus in words and in deeds to live a life of Jesus' saturation by giving the words and works of Jesus, but in the ways of Jesus. How did he do that? In love. And the result is the fullness of Christ, you see in verse 13. And we are to grow up into every way, into him who is in the head, who is the head, into Christ. We're, we're going to grow up into his image, into his likeness. The church matures Jesus' saturation by giving others the words and works of Jesus in the ways of Jesus. So what are the ways of Jesus? How did Jesus do it? What was required of him? I'll answer that in one simple sentence. He gave his life. That's how Jesus did it. He gave his life. He gave all of it, every aspect, down to his last breath. And that's what he is calling us to, to be like Jesus. For Jesus' saturation to happen, we must give our lives to all of life discipleship, life on life, life in community, life on mission. When we look at the life of Jesus, what did he do? He came down from heaven and lived among us. He moved into the neighborhood. And for three and a half years, he had this band of brothers, the 12 disciples. And he would travel from town to town, proclaiming the gospel of God and healing the sick and casting out demons, performing miracles, meeting needs, the words and deeds of Jesus. These disciples, their whole identity was built around Jesus. They did everything together. And it was through that God built the church. So in practical terms, what, what does this look like? We're going to continually refer back to this, these three ideas, these three relational settings or environments. Uh, life on life, life in community, and life on mission. First of all, life on life. What does it mean to live life on life? It's all of life, all of life stuff, eating together, working together, playing together, um, serving together, vacationing together, uh, making life decisions together. One of our former preaching pastors, Rob Turner, I, I remember this sticking out in my head when he was talking about potentially buying a new home. And he said, well, I have to talk to my house church about this before I make this decision. It was like, what? <laughs> I have to talk to, to, you have to talk to your house church? He realized that he needed the family of God to make wise decisions, that he wasn't living an independent life. We as Americans, we think in terms of independence. But those that are called to the family of God we are that. We are an extended family, and we're called to live life together as much as possible. Why is that important? It's because we need uh, visibility, accessibility to each other's lives. We need to get close enough to be seen and known. Many of you here, I'll never know you intimately and personally. I'll never know the struggles that you're going through, the hardships that you're going through, the victories that you have. I'll never know the unbelief that you're struggling with and the truth that, that you need to hear. But when we come close together and we give access to each other's lives, we can speak the truth in love. We can help one another to move from unbelief to belief in every area of life. When I look at the life of Jesus, um, you know, I think that, I mean, that's his, it was all about that, living life on life. Um, I, the first miracle in John chapter 2, when the disciples, Jesus and disciples, went to this wedding uh, celebration, and uh, they run out of wine. And what does Jesus do? He, he turns the water into wine 
good wine, the best wine. And he uses this to teach life lessons to the disciples. And it's interesting, at the end of that chapter, uh, John says that the disciples believed in him. So we have to get up close and we have to live life together so that we can speak the truth in love. I think of when Jesus was traveling uh, to Samaria and uh, he was on his own at this point. I think he had already sent the disciples on ahead of him. And he runs into, well, he stops to rest and get, get a drink. He's at this well. And this woman from Samaria comes along and he asks her to get a drink of water, get, get him a drink of water because he had nothing to, to get water out of the well. And he uses this life situation to communicate that he was the water of life. He could provide life eternal. And it, shake this, it shook up this woman's world. I think about Jesus and, and Peter, James, and John going up to the top of the mountain to pray and and there Jesus is transfigured before them and Jesus talks to Moses and Elijah and the disciples have this opportunity to see the glory of God as it had never been seen before and I think about this how this has transformed my life when I started to shift the way I thought about discipleship and saw that you know discipleship is not just what we do on Sunday or Wednesday night when we meet with our house church. But it's, we can live uh, for Jesus in all aspects of our lives. And uh, Judy and I had come from a, a, a training down at uh, Apex when we first were challenged with this idea. And we drove into Xenia. We parked at the BP. I was pumping gas, and Judy went into the gas station. And there was a young lady and, and her son sitting on the sidewalk and she was talking on her phone and she was visibly upset, crying. Um, and Judy came out and just asked her, hey, are you okay? Is there anything I can do for you? That little act of entering into somebody's life sent us on this journey with this young lady uh, for several years. We discovered that she was uh, homeless living at the Red Cross shelter. There was one of those in Xenia at one point. And she was d- upset because she had nowhere to go. She didn't have transportation. She didn't have a job. So we drove her over to the Red Cross uh, shelter, and we just asked about her what her situation was. We invited her to church, and we said, hey, we're going to come back and check up on you. Um, and we continued to do that, and eventually she was able to get into an apartment, and people from the church literally furnished her apartment. Um, One of the guys in our church made a bed for her, and we filled her cabinets with groceries. But this just sent us on this journey, uh, this amazing journey. She didn't have transportation. A guy in our church gave her a a bike. The bike had a flat. I went over to apartment to change the flat. And while I was sitting there, you know, she's just talking about how ashamed she was about her life. And I, God just opened this door to share how she could have a new identity in Christ. She, her, her past sins were taken care of, could be taken care of on the cross. And she could, she could be royalty. Um, she could have the identity of Christ. And it just opened up many, many more, more opportunities. Eventually, her boyfriend got out of jail. We met her mom and grandmother, and we had meals together. We had them over to our house. and um, it, it was just like this beautiful journey of life on life. I think of another story. Um, I'm going to call this person Bill, uh, where I met him. Uh, we were helping... Judy's uh, work moved some office furniture into their office building. It was a Saturday, and we, Bill and I just had this conversation, and I found out that he wasn't working. And the Holy Spirit just reminded me, hey, life on life, invite Phil into your life. I was working on a deck, building a deck, and I needed somebody to help me finish it before the cold set in. And so I said, hey, Phil, can you come and help me? I'll pay you. And just that little step 
opened up a door where I could speak the gospel to Phil because Phil just asked me this little question. Do you believe in angels? And then I just like, the Holy Spirit just took over and it was like, yeah, I believe in, in, in uh, angels. And one of them had a name and his name was Lucifer. And I just, I just walked through the scriptures with him. I don't know if Phil ever came to Christ. Uh, Judy and I were on vacation and we got the call that Phil uh, or Bill had uh, lost his life suddenly. But he apparently he had been talking to his family and had shared that I had shared with him about heaven. And so his family asked me to do his funeral. So again, I was able to share the gospel with his family um, and co-workers. Uh, we invited the family over for dinner and God opened up another door where I, was, I could share the gospel with Phil's sister. Uh, Phil's mom and sister and brother uh, came over, came to our church. They just he's like, "What's this all about? We want, we want to come to your church." So they started coming to our church. Unfortunately, they lived so far away; it wasn't th something that they could do on a regular basis. But that just opened up so many doors for the gospel. Living life on life, but then living life in community. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because. Next week, Clem is going to talk about our identity as family. But life in community, the gospel has, uh, is formed in community. And when you think about the life of Jesus, the vast majority of his discipleship happened in community. It wasn't one-on-one. -on -one. It was in community with his disciples while they experienced life together. You know, none of us has all the spiritual gifts so we need each other so people can experience the fullness of Christ. Not all of us, you know, we can't all be ears, otherwise we wouldn't have nothing to see with. We can't all be nose because then we'd have nothing to hear with. We need each other. We need the body of Christ, and the world needs to see. They're not going to see the fullness of Jesus if they don't see his community, his family, his entire body in action. And if they, they're not able to see our love for one another, to see that picture uh, that Paul sh shared with us, that, that life of a humility and gentleness and patience and putting up with each other and, and seeking unity with that one another. They need to see that because that's not the world they live in. That's not what they're experiencing. So they need to see community. And then last, life on mission. When Jesus called his disciples, he, he said, come follow me and, and I will make you fishers of men. Really, church is really all about mission. It's all about us fulfilling God's mission to saturate the world with Christ, to make him Lord of all. The best training for mission happens on mission. Um, I think about, you know, when Jesus in, in Luke 10, he would, he would send out his disciples in training. He would send them out, give them instructions, go to the next town, uh, and they would go ahead of him, and they would go together, uh, doing life together on mission, and he, they would go to a home and find a person of peace, somebody that was hospitable, and Jesus told them to stay there. Again, this, this incarnational ministry, living life on life. And they would just stay there and build relationships with the person there. And then that would open another door and then another door. And, um, and then they would come back and report to Jesus how things went. And, and they would ask questions of Jesus. So life on mission together. And I think a lot of times you're, we, we ask ourselves, okay, how can I do this? We're talking about life on life, life in community, life on mission. There's just not enough life to do all this. And we think in terms of, well, I got to do life or mission. Uh, or maybe I'll do life and mission. I'll just make it work. I'll find more time. I'll fit this into my schedule. No, God wants us to do life as mission. He wants us to redeem every aspect of your life. Hey, you're... I used to have a friend that he would drive by and he would just say, hey, Jay, I'm going to Lowe's. You want to go with me? And we'd have these amazing conversations. You know, you're, 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 whatever you're doing, invite people into it. 
Invite your family into it. You're having a, a birthday celebration. Invite people into it. You know, we, we, we have three meals a day. Everybody eats. Let's join together and have meals together. And in those contexts, we can do discipleship. And then invite those that don't know Jesus, people from work, neighbors, friends. We've been doing these, uh, what we call away games on the fifth month, the months they have a fifth Sunday. And they've been helpful. Um, and in, in we've talked about, you know, we don't want them to become, hey, I've fulfilled my obligation. I've done my mission duty. Um, but I think they've been helpful to challenge us to think uh, more missionally as a family, to get out of our box, get out of our comfort zone. And one of the ones that we did was we invited, uh, we had an opportunity to feed a meal to the Xenia High School football team. And there was probably like 40 or 50 of them up there in the community room. And it was just, it was great. I mean, just see the body, the gifts of the body at work. Some people were serving food. Some people were organizing tables. Some people were, you know, Tristan was over there smooching, smoozing. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> he was talking to the coaches and, and the football players and just, you know, everybody, if you know Tristan, he's just very relational. That was his gift. And, you know, and I like to talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, so I'd find a football player that was just by himself, and I'd go strike up a conversation. But it was awesome because we were entering into their life, and they were entering into our life, and the walls were beginning to be broken down, and we could see people's gifts, and we could encourage each other and learn from it. And at the end, we played ping pong and with a bunch of the kids, and uh, one of the kids called me the, the, the demon player or something like that. It was like, I don't know if I want to be called a demon, but it kind of made me feel good because the walls were being broken down, you know? They were starting to feel comfortable with us, and we were entering into their world. That's all of life discipleship. That's what he calls us to. I'm going to close here with uh, a little illustration. Um, I had to kill some time on a plane flight out to visit our son and daughter-in-law. And so I downloaded this uh, documentary called My Octopus the Teacher. It was kind of a fascinating uh, film uh, done by Craig Foster. He's a renowned nature filmmaker. And uh, he was down at the Western Cape of South Africa, and he would go out and, and dive in the icy ocean waters and uh, when he was down there he saw this strange thing and here's a picture of it uh, does anybody know what that is it's actually an octopus this octopus would grab sh shells and suck onto them and just use these shells as protection to keep predators from killing it and to hide from predators. And that's what he first came across. And he decided, I'm going to go out there every day, free dive, and film this octopus. And every day he would go out there. And pretty soon, over time, this octopus began to realize, hey, this isn't a predator. I'm okay. This, this, this person's safe. And eventually, you know, he's swimming with the octopus. And then one day he goes out there. He did this for like a year. And I guess octopus, uh, they, they only live like a year or two. Um, so he's out there and this octopus is like just grabbing at this school of fish. They're all just kind of flurrying around and he's just grabbing. And at first he thought, well, this must be, he's hunting for fish. And he began to realize, no, he's just, he's just having fun. He's just playing around with these fish. And then all of a sudden, he turns away from this school of fish, and he just lunges at Craig Foster and latches onto his chest like he's giving him this just big hug. And there's a picture of it. It's not real clear, but this, this little octopus just latches a hold of him. And it's just, this just reminded me so much of how Jesus entered our world and lived among us. He lived life on life, life on mission. 
life in community. And ultimately, he gave his life on a cross. He broke through our hard shells and gave us life, a life with him. And he rose from the grave and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And he won the victory for us. And now he's distributing, he's distributing gifts to his church, the gifts of grace, immeasurable grace by his spirit. And he's given us the power and authority to execute his mission on his behalf. So the question before us, are we going to live worthy of the calling, this immeasurable gift that we have in Christ Jesus? Are are we willing to give all of our life for him, for Jesus' saturation? Are we willing to live life on life, life in community, life on mission for his glory? Father, thank you. Thank you isn't really enough to express our gratitude, Lord. We can really do no less than totally give our lives to you. and So I, I pray that that will be our desire, Lord, and, and Lord, that we would truly give our all because you gave your all. And Lord, I pray that you would use new community to accomplish Jesus' saturation in Xenia and beyond. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in all that we do as your church, as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.